the week, last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. I think we're on week like 24, 25. So uh, Exodus 15 is our text for today. For today. And what I want to do now is just I want to lay out the idea, the main idea this morning is that of worship. So there's, there's one topic for today um, throughout this entire, this is the Song of Moses, if you're familiar. This is God's people's right response to God's glory, okay? And that's, that's the main idea. Worship is God's people's right response to God's glory. And so this question of what is worship is probably one that you've asked most of your life, uh, whether you're a Christian or maybe you're on the fringe of Christianity, but if you've been breathing, this is something that you've probably thought is, what is worship? I want to start by reading a quote from um, a worship leader. His name is Mike Cosper. Uh, you might know him from leading the podcast, but uh, this is from his book, Rhythms of Grace. Listen to these words. It'll be on the screen. You can read them too. It says this, worship is an invitation to step into the rhythms of grace. We remember our identity as gospel forms people, journeying together through the story that gave us our identity and being sent out to live gospel-shaped lives. Practiced in these rhythms, we learn to think in them, much as we learn to improvise on an instrument. I think for a lot of us, worship is music. And what I hope to communicate today is it's so much more than that. And it is, it is really at the nature of who we are as we respond back. We're all made uh, in the image of God. God is the one who deserves our worship. Here's what I know to be true, okay? Uh, we're all, no matter whether you're a Christian or not, you all, we're all worshipers, okay? What I want to do is communicate the content of our worship, right? What we worship. I remember uh, the first time we, my family, uh, we have three kids, eight, six, and two. We went to a Braves game, okay? I've, my oldest is a son, a boy. The other two are girls. Girls go to baseball game for snacks. Boys go to baseball games to worship, okay? I remember walking in to Truist Park. This would have been a few years ago. And so at the time, Braden was probably four or five years old. Loves baseball. Um, it's one of the things where the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I love baseball. And I remember growing up as a kid, the first time I went to um, the old Fulton County Stadium and walking in and seeing my heroes and just being captivated, right, by these guys who've nearly perfected the game that I loved. And watching, it's different when you're watching your kid go and experience that, but we're all created to worship. We know how to worship. Our problem is sometimes we worship in the wrong direction. And so what I want to do today is reorient our hearts, our hands, our feet, our minds around authentic Christian worship. He is a good God who is worthy of worship. So we know how to worship. We just must reorient. John Calvin, you've heard me quote this before, but he says that the human heart's an idol factory. And what does that mean? It means that our heart is pulling us in a direction opposite of where God is drawing us into. And so when that comes to worship, these idol-making factories inside of us are telling us, hey, go worship at the Brave Stadium because it's awesome. And we do. Or... For some of you, maybe last night was a difficult time of worship as the bulldog struggled. For me, it was an ecstatic time of worship, although it didn't end well for me. 
But our hearts are idol factories. Augustine, my boy Augustine, says it this way. He says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. At the end of the day, worship is that. It's resting in the promises of God because he is a promise maker. So how does this play out? There are 400 verses in our Bible on singing. Okay? We are called to be a singing people. So one of the things that I would encourage you to do, if you have a hard time singing, again, worship is more than singing, but worship is not less than singing, right? Is these, these seats right up here, the ones that are in the front that no one likes to sit in? It's a really good place to sing because no one else can hear you. That's why we sit up front, okay? I don't sing well. My wife is trained in vocal performance. That's what her degree is in. So we don't come to the table equally yoked when it comes to singing. And yet God has commanded us. There's 50 explicit commands in the Bible to sing. Singing is a response to God's victory, his nature, his character. Every command of God in the Bible is about lining us up with who God created us to be and ultimately for his glory and our joy. There's no doubt that you leave here most Sundays singing the songs that we're being led to sing. I'm not offended by that. I'm okay with you forgetting the four points or the today, the five, sorry, I know that's a lot, but we'll forget them quickly. I know that to be true. I'll forget them, full disclosure. I wrote them. But the songs we sing are etched into the fabric of our memory. They're etched into the fabric of our heart. And we'll go Monday morning sitting in traffic or doing, going to school or doing whatever, and we'll be reminded of the rehearsal of a Sunday morning in those moments that God is good and he has won. Uh, if you've, different story, different child. If you know our middle child, Mary London, she's six, okay? If you've been around the branch, you've met her. Uh, she's introduced your, herself to you with some sort of awkward question. That's who she is. She's very curious. Mary London loves to sing. She loves to sing. And she, she'll be singing stuff she doesn't even know about. She'll just be humming, making noise. But it's usually always a joyful noise to her. Maybe not to us all the time. But she is, uh, her little life is full of joy. And so she'll be sitting in the car, getting in trouble, just singing along, not worried about it. Because her heart, she's, she's numb to everything else, but she knows how to sing, right? Children sing like no one else is listening. What I want us to do is get to the point where we can be like that child, be like that six-year-old girl. Maybe you do need to sit in the front, where your heart, your mind can respond through worship. Worship is one of the, we were talking in the back before we were getting ready. Stuff doesn't always go well when you do setup and teardown every week, just so you know that. We had a bunch of new people who were helping with setup, so props to y'all. Thank you for supporting us. But stuff doesn't always go well. Sometimes a cable gets cut, believe it or not. Sometimes the knobs don't work or there's an echo in the speakers. We're in a gymnasium, after all. But it's not a performance. We don't come to church in order to perform. Riley and the team don't rehearse throughout the week in order to put on a great show. They come to lead us because we have been recipients of God's great story. So Exodus 15, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's going to, be, it's going to take us a minute. But I hope that we'll slow down long enough to listen to this song. And then we'll dive into some of the meat here. This is Exodus 15, verse 1. 
Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Right? That word then is pointing us to what happened before, right? So let's keep it in the context of what's happening to God's people. They've just escaped Egypt. They've just been led through the Dead Sea, which where the waters open up. They pass through on dry ground. The waters collapse on Pharaoh and his army and are drowned. And God's people are finally free. Okay? So then Moses, this is their, now their response to that. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 4, I hear you. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Little g. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread, verse 16, fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text. I'm thankful for this song. The rhythm and the architecture 
of Moses. God, I pray that the affections that Moses have on the backside of the Red Sea would change the way that we view our life and the salvation that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. I pray that when we see the commands to sing, that we would respond in obedience because you know that it is good for our souls. I'm thankful for this text. I'm thankful for where we are in the story and the grand narrative of redemptive history communicated through the book of Exodus. Thank you that Moses is faithful. Lord, we love you. We pray now that we would continue in worship as we look at this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three things that I want to do here uh, as we exegete the text. If you were around last week, we did a branch school of theology on bibliology, and that's one of the words that we use a lot. Exegete is pulling out of the text what God had in the culture and in the context, what it was written, and how that might apply and impact our lives. The flip side of that, we talked about this last week actually, on Sunday morning, is eisegesis, where we read into it what we want to be there. So we're not going to do that here, but we're going to exegete this text. So the three things that I want us to do, I want to look at the theology of worship, okay? I want us to look at the culture of worship, and finally, I want us to look at the heart of worship, all right? So as we begin with this theology of worship, theology being the study of God, the simplest way to say this is the more that you learn about who God is, the more you will worship him. I know that to be true. In the years that I've spent on this earth, the more I have studied who he is, the more I've dug into real rigorous theology, the more my affections for him have grown. In the seasons where I might be a little bit more apathetic, or the seasons where I haven't really worshiped well. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at this theology of worship that worship is the right response to God's nature and character, and that all of our praise contains this rich theology because God has made it personal. Here's the story of Exodus. Was it a group that went through the Red Sea, or was it a person who went through a Red Sea? It was both, right? What we know is it was 600,000 men that left Egypt plus the women and children, so it's a bunch of people. And they get to the other side. The group has made it. The nation has arrived. And yet there were 600,000 individuals who were saved from the Red Sea, plus women and children. That's a different kind of story. That's a kind of story that should stir our hearts to worship in response to what God has done. Of those people who crossed the Red Sea, not one of them moved a single drop of water. God did all of that. It was as dry as this basketball floor, although it looks a little shinier this week than it did last week. Thank you, county. All right? There wasn't a single drop of water for the Israelites as they crossed through the Red Sea. It wasn't muddy. It wasn't quicksandy. I don't know if that's a word. It is now. It was dry. That's what God does. And on the backside of the Red Sea, God's people sing a song. You know how this was written. 
the book of Exodus. This is Moses looking back on what God had done. He is telling the story again because he needed to be reminded and he wanted his people to be reminded. Ultimately, I think he wanted his son to be reminded. Do not forget that our God led us out of Egypt. He took us right through the middle of the sea that's right back there. Do you see it? Don't forget it. But I don't want you just not to forget it. I want you to not forget it in order that you might worship God because that's what we've been created to do. In the beginning, God created us in his image. As image bearers, we reflect back his glory. That's what worship is. It's standing in the presence of God and saying, he's better than me. And he's worthy of everything that I have. The victory of God. We do know this. We've, we've said this here. This was a battle that God won by on, on his own. Okay? I don't, however many of 600 chariots, uh, Egyptian chariots with all their horsemen, right, who come chasing after the Hebrews, all of them died. That is a fatal blow. It's a victory won. God did that. The victory of God should inspire us to worship. Here's what's true in your life. This is going to sound cheesy. I don't mean it to be cheesy. If you've been around the branch, you know I'm not a cheesy guy unless I'm talking offline, right? When it comes to the Bible, I don't play games. But what I know is that there's something in your life that Christ has championed over. There is a Red Sea in my life and in your life that God has led you through. Amen. It's not cheesy, it's the gospel. And shame on us, the church, for making it sound like it might be cheesy. The gospel simply, we say this week after week, it's dead things becoming living things. God breathed life through his son Jesus into a set of dead lungs. And today I use those lungs to say, come Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Paul is saying. God redeemed his people, which means that he bought them back in their responses to worship. If you'll go back a few weeks, and Exodus is probably six or seven weeks ago, we were talking about this mingling of mercy and what? Judgment. Mercy and judgment. In the Red Sea, it was merciful, and it was also God's judgment. Mercy and judgment are perfectly spun together in God's nature, and God desires his people to remember his great acts of deliverance. That's what we do every week here. As we go back week after week, and we remember and we rehearse the gospel. So the more that we learn about God, the more our hearts should be impacted, our affections towards him. That's what worship is. That's a theology of worship. So should you, should you read your Bible every day? Yes, you should. Not because you have to, but because the more that you do it, the more the Spirit will work. And this sounds like a, this isn't legalism. Again, if you've been around, you know that we don't do that here either. Legalism meaning if you do this, you get this, but here's the fruit. The more that you learn about God, the more he will use that knowledge the more that you're aware of what God's doing in community. Can I tell you something? Look around just for a minute. In this room, there are people who have stories of brokenness that are now stories of healing right next to you, including the person who's sitting in your seat. God's doing something amazing, and our theology should lead us to worship. I want to talk about culture of worship because our society, the world in which we live, knows that we were created to worship. 
And so what do we do? We have ads, we have ads on top of ads, we have ads underneath ads, all trying to get to the core of who we are. If you have this thing, you'll be happy. If you have more of this, you will be happier than you were before. You will finally find joy when you get into this car. Okay? That's the story that we are told day in and day out. I've heard numbers of how many ads you hear in a day. It's a ridiculous amount of ads. Okay? It's a bunch. Look it up. I don't want to use a number because I will definitely be wrong, but it's a lot. If I said a million, I'd probably be pretty close. But this idea of culture of worship, we live in a me-centered world. And here's what's dangerous about that, is that a me-centered culture in the church is songs about me. It's sermons about me. That's not worship. It's not Christian worship. That's earthly worship seeping through the cracks and under the door of the church. And so we're very thoughtful about the songs that we sing. There are songs that we've chosen not to sing. There are songs that our other churches have chosen not to sing that we've chosen to sing because we believe that the theology behind those songs are good and right and we need to remember who God is and what is being declared in that song. I don't care who wrote it. I know it was a sinner. This song from Psalm 15, guess what? was written by a murderer. Do you remember? So let's don't pretend that we have to have everything perfect. That's what the me-centered culture is telling us. More of me, a better me, is not going to satisfy your soul. It's going to leave you longing for more. And the next upgrade to your phone, you're going to need more than you need your next breath. It's a dangerous world. What does a healthy culture of worship look like? It looks like this. We come together every week to remember and rehearse the gospel story through singing, through preaching, through praying, and through going and taking the Lord's Supper. Every week we do those things. Why? Because we don't want me to slip into here. This is a gathering of people who are oriented towards God's identity, who he is and what he's about. We want to join in with what he's doing. So every week we gather Every week we gather together as an opportunity to reorient ourselves around the greater story of creation, the greater story of sin, redemption, and ultimately when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. That's what we're doing. That's how we rehearse the gospel. The third thing I want us to look at is the heart of worship. These, have, these things came out of uh, the little uh, commentary by Tony Marita that we've handed out. I think most of you in this room probably have one. If you don't, where have you been? Uh, all of our family group leaders have one, though. So these things are in a section of, on uh, Exodus 15. So I want to just walk us through these. What is a heart of worship? The first is a heart of worship is about God's glory. All right? This song tells us of the splendor of God and his attributes over and over and over and over and over again. So the songs that we sing are going to be songs that are about that. The second thing comes from verse 2, that God's a personal God. Listen to what it says. The Lord is whose strength? My strength. The Lord is my song, and he has become my salvation. Those are the only things that we ever want to talk about ourselves in. 
Because God has done those things. He has become our strength. He has become our song. He has become our salvation. The third is that God is a promise keeper. This also comes from verse 2. It says, this is my God and I will praise him. Whose God was it? My father's God. This is a story of genealogy. If we remember the story from the beginning, that God, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the babies who survived the Nile, the God of my father, is Moses saying, God's kept his promise to my family. My God, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The fourth is that God is a warrior. Do you see, the more that we learn about God, the more that we begin to understand our great need for him, okay? God is a warrior. Verse 3, the Lord, Yahweh, do you remember this from earlier in Exodus? What should we call you? What's your name? Moses is begging, who am I supposed to tell them that you are? God's response is, I am. I am that I am. The word Yahweh. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is a declaration. When I was in high school, um, we, we won back-to-back state championships. Pretty impressive. You should be super impressed. Um, I don't know where the rings are, okay? They're somewhere in our house, I think. But what do we do? When you win, you celebrate. And what song do you sing? We are the champions. Right? I didn't have to learn that song. I didn't have to be reminded. I didn't have to look at the, the lyric screen as we were running to jump into the lake. We nearly flipped the bus over because we were so happy. No, our hearts were filled with joy. And we knew how to respond. We knew exactly what to do. No one had to teach us. We'd never seen anyone else do it. But we knew what to do. That's what we're doing when we come together as the church. We're gathering together. We know what to do. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Is it coming together? God is a warrior. The reason Moses' song is fitting for all of redemptive history is because God has triumphed gloriously over all of his enemies. It wasn't just Egypt. We know this, right? That's the whole point. The point wasn't that God's people got out of Exodus. The point is that God became their God. And yes, he used their deliverance. He used the Exodus in order to prove who he was to them. So he didn't only defeat Pharaoh and his armies, but he also has defeated Satan. And this is what we know on the backside of an empty tomb as he came and defeated death itself. So should we respond in song to that? That's what we should do on Easter. Maybe we'll do uh, we, we Are the Champions on Easter this year. He is a champion over death, sin, and Satan. Praise God for that. The next is from verse 11 is that God is unique. And why is this important? Because the people who just been rescued out of Egypt have been influenced so heavily by Egypt that there was more than one God. So God is unique. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic and holiest? Do you see the tenderness, the great care, the love that Moses has in this moment because he's been set free? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. He is without peer and he's holy, incomparable. The last is that God is steadfast love. This is that Hebrew word we talked about, hased. He is steadfast love. And what does that mean? 
is that we've been redeemed with a faithful love, a love that doesn't run out, doesn't have a time clock on it, doesn't get tired. It doesn't say, you know what, I've moved on, I, I desire something else or someone else. It's a faithful love. It's a steadfast love. And God rescues us in order to show us that type of love. This is what he does in his son Jesus. One of my favorite books on uh, the theology of worship is written by a group of worship pastors, um, but Matt Boswell gets the credit for putting the book together, kind of compiling this. But it's a book called Doxology, Theology, and the Mission of God. And in that, the basic premise of the book is he lays out five marks of a worshiping church. These are super helpful. So they're going to be on the screen. Jot them down if you want, um, or come up afterwards, and I'll make sure you get them. But listen to these things, and we'll go through them as we begin to close our time together this morning. The first is that worship is God-centered. Worship, this is what we've been laying out. This is the primary idea of the morning. Worship is God-centered. It's about Him. It's to Him. It's for Him. It's through Him. That worship is God-centered. The second is that worship is biblically formed. This is why we come to the text the way that we come to the text. Because if we read out of context who God is, guess what? We've misunderstood His nature and character. We've all of a sudden told ourselves who he is that is not who he's revealed himself to be. And our world says that how could a good God let something terrible happen to someone who's so innocent? The truth is, the Bible says that there's no, no one innocent, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sounds terrible. Our world hates that kind of message. And yet, Christ came to die for sinners. We leave that out. Because we've been so devastated that a good God could do something, that a good God could be a, a God of wrath and judgment, and yet in his wrath and in his judgment, he's displaying his glory and his love for his people, his said, This is who God is. Worship is biblically formed. Worship is, third, worship is gospel rot. It seeps through everything. It's full of the gospel. That's why every week we come in here, we declare and we redeclare. We rehearse and we re-rehearse the story of the gospel, that Christ has come to save sinners. The fourth is that worship is congregational. Guys, we do this really well, okay? We do this really well here. We come together and we sing. Now, I would encourage you to let it loose, Right? And I'm not saying like dancing around, although you can do that. It's freedom. It's a gym. You can do whatever you want in here within reason. Right? But there's no handcuffs to worship. It's another thing we like to do in contemporary Christian world is we like to handcuff worship. And I'm not trying to talk about charismatic stuff. I'm talking about the theology of worship. Worship is the right response of who God is. It's congregational. It means that we gather together in order to do this together because you can't do it by yourself. When you spend time alone, guess your mind and your attention, your affections are drawn to what? Yourself. We are by nature selfish beings. The fifth is that worship is missional. Worship has a purpose. Yes, it is for the glory of God, but it's for the good of those who are around us. That's why we sing together. We sing, we come together every Sunday to encourage and equip and release. Encourage, equip, release. That's what we do. Because if we take this good news and we bottle up and we keep it in here, guess what? It's not really good news. It's not. And so we are sent out. 
The best way to think about it is we come together and we're pulling back the we're pulling back the arrow as far as we can. Every Sunday, we're pulling it back until the thing's about to break. And then we aim right out that door and we let loose. And all of us are arrows in the quiver of God's nature and character to be used. It's just like he chose to use Moses. Just like he chose to use Aaron. He's choosing to use you. God's greatest act of deliverance was raising his crucified son from the grave, bringing eternal life to all who trust him. So now and forevermore, we too should sing of his glorious work. Should we sing with our voices? Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Back to Mike Cosper. Start with him and we'll end with him. This is more from a pastoral standpoint, but I think it's important for us to hear. He says, gathering for worship is a life-shaping moment in a congregation's week. And our task as pastors is to seize that opportunity for an all-out assault on their hearts. As servants of God, we prepare people for death, and we prepare them for eternity, and most of them just think they're going to church. So just know that here, when you come here, what we're doing is we're preparing you for death. Death to yourself, death to your sin, but we're pointing you, that's not the, that's part of the good news, okay? Hang with me if you're new here, it's all going to come together, trust me. But for real life, life everlasting We prepare them for eternity. That's our task. It's not just the pastor's task. It's not Riley's task or Caroline or Molly Ann. It's all of our tasks. That's what we do when we come together. If this is our God, then our future is secure. We know that. And so what do we have to fear? There's nothing. There's nothing. And that's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to practice. That's why we worship. That's why we gather. Divorce stinks, y'all. It does. I bet there's not a single person in this room who hasn't been impacted by it. It's hard. It is. There's no divorce in eternity. Cancer is the worst. Believe that. I believe it's the face of Satan himself. And yet there's going to come a day and there'll be no more. Your addiction, there's going to come a day when you're not going to be tempted by the things on your computer or the things in your cupboard, or the things out in the world. There's going to come a day when you never feel lonely. That's what we're trying to do here. We come together so that you can be encouraged. You're not alone. You're not walking through what you're walking through by yourself. That is worship. That's what congregations do. That's what brothers and sisters do. My greatest fear as a parent is to lose a kid. It is. There are days that parenting is very hard. My greatest fear is to lose a child. Is God still good? Yes. He is. And guess what? I'm telling them that. That's how we disciple each other. Is that in the face of hard stuff, that God is good. Revelation 15, this is what we'll read to close. This is Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. It says, They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts. 
have been revealed. Praise God for that. It's been revealed in your life and it's been revealed in mine. The main idea, and we'll close with this, is that the purpose of our theology is doxology. The word doxology means praise the word. It means to worship. Our right response to God is to sing praises to his name. There's no one like you, O God. The Lord will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into a time of communion, as we go to the table and take of the bread and dip it in the cup, God, we're reminded of your great victory over death and Satan and sin in your son, Jesus. We're thankful that by your spirit you have gathered us together this morning. And I'm just encouraged, I mean, you promised us this, that where two or more have gathered in my name, there I will be. We know that you are here. And in your presence, we will sing. We will worship. And so I pray, Father, for brothers and sisters who are having a hard time right now, worshiping who you are because of what they're going through. You've promised us over and over again that the content of your character is greater than the circumstances of our life. So would you help us to be mindful of that? Help us to remember well who you are and what you're about. Would you stir our affections in these moments as we respond? We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you, thankful that we can gather together in a free space and take a look at your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go.